Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Eat Me and Question Everything with Devin and Courtney. Today, we have Dr. Bill Schindler. Thank you so much for being here with us. It is truly my pleasure. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, we just hop right into it. And you, I think most of the people who are listening to this are going to know a little bit about you. But just for those who might, can you just give us the whole 101 and tell us all about, about yourself? Sure, I'll do the quick 101 version and we can dive in anything deeper that, that we need to. Uh, my background is primarily in archaeology and anthropology. So I was an archaeologist, I guess so, some of them I still am, but I've been an archaeologist for um, about 25 years now and have taught archaeology and anthropology at the university level for about 20 years until recently leaving. And my wife and I, an entire family, started two new ventures, the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, which is a restaurant that puts all of my research and our family's work around the world into practice with real food, and then a nonprofit called the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is our, our education and, and outreach arm. So the, the, the quick version of me is I have battled uh, weight and health my entire life, and it wasn't until I started putting together my work with archaeology and anthropology with ancestral diets and you know modern food ways and blending them together till I finally was able to experience what living a really true full nourishing life really means and um, not only am I, I'll turn 50 next month healthier than I've ever been my entire life but all of that work has really transformed um, my family's diet and health and more recently with the work that we're doing now in the community the community's health. That's awesome. I, I'm really interested to hear. Um, we got a little bit from Dr. Chafee, but I, I think when we think of diet nowadays, we don't really think about it in regards to our evolution and our ancestors. Mm -hmm. And if we do, it's a very short amount of time that we are like considering, like maybe a couple hundred years ago, a couple thousand years ago. So in a very evolutionary sense, can you just, I don't know, talk, talk about diet and how Courtney and I are both pretty strict carnivores, um, at least animal-based. How do we know what an appropriate diet for hmm. our species is? That's a fantastic question. First off, uh, Dr. Shafee is amazing. We met in person in Austin at a, at KetoCon and we hit it off immediately. In fact, both of our presentations had so much overlap. I love the work that he's doing and I love the way that he really um, can explain it in such a, a really understandable way to everybody. Uh, so yeah, the... I think the first question we need to answer is why do we even care what an ancestral diet is like? And I, I, the, the, the answer to that, and this has really been the focus of all the work I've been doing, is that you know these diets are evolutionary diets. First of all, there isn't one diet, right? We're talking about millions of years worth of diversity and you know places all over the world worth of diversity. So there's a lot of diversity, but there are some some commonalities between these diets and and things that seem to be the mission of the people that are creating and consuming these diets that I think are really, really important here. And most importantly is those diets did something, right? They actually supported our massive body and brain growth over millions of years. And it was those diets that, that actually created us as humans, 300 modern day homo sapiens, 300,000 years ago. So if we're, everybody's looking for a species appropriate diet or a, you know, a, a diet that actually works well, that's the diet. I mean, the diet that literally built us as humans should be the foundation of our dietary approach today. Now, certainly there are a lot of differences between today and 300,000 years ago, um, but those are environmental differences. Those are th things that we do to ourselves or we've done, you know, to our outside world that are, are, are impacting the way that we live and, and, and our health. 
when we really look at our bodies and our nutritional needs, and also our digestive tracts and what our digestive tracts can actually do or what it can't do, more importantly, with the food that we take in, we really do have to go back to 300,000 years ago to understand because it's the same. I mean, our digestive tracts are the same size as they were 300,000 years ago. Our bodies and our brains are the same size, essentially, as they were 300,000 years ago. Yes, you can make the, the argument, the case that um, people may have been uh, in general more active 300,000 years ago than, than we are today. But that's a really, as far, you know, looking at it from a macroscopic level, uh, you know, 40,000 foot view, that's not that important when we're looking at the realities of, of what really means, what it really takes to make a, a nourishing diet. I mean, everybody's heard, and I love this, weight is lost in the kitchen, not in the gym. We go to the gym we should be going to the gym to celebrate all the things that we can do and to build muscle and do all of those other things. It's not about losing weight. Those are, those are the dietary um, choices that we make that can really impact our weight loss. And, and if that's true, then let's go back again. It doesn't matter if you're a couch potato or if you're you know somebody that goes to the gym two or three or four times a week, you still essentially need the same types of foods and nutrients in order to make your body your human body as, as amazing as it can be and function the way that, that it should be functioning. So when we look at our dietary past, there's several things that are, that are common. Number one, um, and I know you guys are both carnivores and I eat a, a primarily carnivorous diet, but one thing that we need to make sure that everyone understands is we have been at some level eating plants or most of us have been for the entirety of our and our ancestral existence. The difference between the narrative that's been, you know, told for the past hundred years and the narrative we're, 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 that I believe is is the true narrative that we're really finding out now, is that it wasn't a plant-based diet with a little bit of meat, right? It was a meat or an animal-based diet with a little bit of plants. It isn't when the harvest wasn't there that we started going hunting. It is when we when we couldn't get the animal resources for whatever reason, you know, we started to have to turn to the plant world to supplement that. Um, so when, when we look at our, our dietary past, there's several markers, and I, I'm sure Dr. Chafee hit on some of these, but, but I'd like to just um, recount a, a few that are really, really important that I think are significant. Our diets, before we started including animals, were primarily consisted of a limited amount of wild vegetables, limited amount of wild fruits, and a whole bunch of insects. Now of those, right, insects are the most nutrient-dense bioavailable of those three choices. And when we picture what that looked like in the past, 5 million years ago, 7 million years ago, it wasn't the way that we picture plants available to us today. It's not like we're strolling through the produce section with a cart and acme, or we were walking through the farmer's market. I mean, all of the food that they had access to, number one, was, was hyper-seasonal, right? So they weren't storing these things. They didn't have refrigerators. I mean, 7 million years ago, for God's sake. So it is what was available at the time. Hyper-local, they weren't traveling great distances for these things. And they didn't have boats or planes or whatever, and they weren't shipping things anywhere. And most importantly, um, and I know Dr. Shafee hits on this really, really hard. It's 100% true. Plants, all plants have some level of toxin in them. So if they don't have any strategy to detoxify these plants, the only plants that were available to them were not only hyperlocal and hyperseasonal, but also those that had a toxin load low enough that they could safely consume them without any processing whatsoever. So it was very limited. The insects also um, were hyperlocal, certainly, but they're available on a much longer basis. Um, you know, you, you could eat most insects throughout most times of the year. And um, there's very few insects which are toxic. So you could eat just about any one that you find and they're incredibly nutrient dense and bioavailable compared to plants. But 
the other thing we need to realize is those ancestors were incredibly small. They were super small with super small brains. Their nutritional requirements were not that high. And that diet worked for them for their, you know, for what they needed. About three, almost three and a half million years ago, we started introducing scavenged meat into our diet because we started making tools that allowed us to cut flesh off of animals that were killed by other animals. And that's awesome. But what we realized when we look at the archaeological record is not much changed when we started introducing meat at that time. You know, our bodies didn't jump in, in, in huge, uh, huge size and our brains didn't jump immensely either in size. So there's two possibilities. Uh, one is we were just starting to introduce meat into our diet and we really didn't have that much on a regular basis that really could support massive body uh, and brain growth. The drivers for massive body and brain growth weren't really necessarily there at the time, possibly, right? It isn't that we started eating um, more nourishing food and that caused our bodies and our brains to get bigger. The reality is something was pushing our bodies and our brains to want to get bigger. And when we um, were able to consume the, the resources in the right way that had the right nourishment, we could support that growth. So if we just ate a lot of food and there wasn't anything pushing for our bodies, or our brains to get bigger, we just get, you know, lazy and fat, right? <laughs> so there was something pushed, maybe that mechanism wasn't there at the time. Or what I believe is the case is that even though meat is absolutely incredible compared to, you know, different plant resources, it isn't until 2 million years ago when our ancestors developed hunting technology and became apex predators and were able to take animals down at will and uh, that they could introduce into their diets the most nutrient-dense bioavailable part um, of the animal, which is the blood, the fat, and the organs. So when they could hunt, take animals down at will, and they had the ability to eat any part of that animal that they wanted, that uh, what we see at that moment is that we have massive body and brain growth, the biggest jump in, in, in an evolutionary scale we ever have seen. And I, it could be a lot of different factors, but I think that's the primary one. So two million years ago, which is a million and a half years later than uh, when we introduced meat into our diet for the first time, we introduced the entire animal and also have the ability to cook, massive body and brain growth. Uh, wonderful things are happening from that point forward. Almost every single technology that we see invented has something to do with food and most importantly has something to do with making raw materials as safe and nutrient dense and bioavailable as possible. And our bodies and our brains continue to grow until the agricultural revolution about 12,000 years ago. And then everything goes in the opposite direction. That yeah, was a long-winded explanation. So. No, I was like, no, that's great. Eating it up that, cause like, I, I feel like I have, I, I mean, we've talked to Chape, we would talk to all these people who are like, well, yeah, yeah. And we get a very, um, condensed version and that's the most detailed version we've got and I'm just like give me more you know what I mean like <laughs> I want all the details that's amazing that was great Thank yeah you. but then it's also like well why do people think this is I mean carnivore or not I think we can all agree that having like a diet um you know high in animal is good so why are people thinking that at least with carnivore that it's like a fad diet like if we've been eating meat all these years and we're designed to eat meat i don't get why people think what we're doing is so crazy i mean you just explained we've always been eating meat well you know the crazy thing about that timeline uh, and and let me just finish the timeline real quick so this is an important piece so at about twelve thousand years ago become and, I, and then i can directly answer your question uh, at about 12,000 years ago or so, depending on where you are in the world, um, we start, many of us 
start switching over into, you know, an agricultural based society. And almost all of that agriculture is focused on annual grasses. So if you're in, you know, Southeast Asia, it's rice. If you're in the Fertile Crescent or in Europe or where, those areas, you're in things like barley and wheat and whatever. If you're in Mesoamerica, you're looking at things like maize, but they're almost always focused on an annual grass. And the reason is because you can uh, create it in a huge surplus. That surplus is storable throughout the entire year. Somebody can be in control of that resource. And because they're in control of the food for the entire population, they're in control of the population, and they can redistribute that food and do it over and over again. This gives birth to the agriculture revolution. This gives birth to hierarchical, you know, structured societies. This gives birth to armies and warfare, organized warfare, and all those other things. Um, and it also, um, the byproduct at the same time is when you take a certain segment of the population and make them work harder than ever to create the food for everybody else, it frees up a large part of that society to do other things, which when we're taught about that in high school, um, we're like, oh, it's a wonderful thing. Agricultural revolution gives birth to, to writing and poetry and people can now be artists because they don't have to worry about their food and all this. And that's great. But at the same time, all those people who are not directly connected to their food are not directly connected to their food. You know, they're getting more and more, more disconnected and rely on other people for it. So at the moment of the agriculture revolution and that whole that whole time period, we go from hunter-gatherers, right, to food producers. Some member of members of the community are, are producing food, right, growing it, and and a large segment is getting completely removed from it. The next major uh you know milestone, I think, in our evolutionary past as far as diet's concerned is the uh, Industrial Revolution in the 1700s, where we remove even more people from the land and from directly getting their food. And we go from food producers to most of us are food consumers. And in each one of those, those uh, milestones, we're adding more links into the food chain. People are getting more and more and more separated. And when you get separated from your food chain, you don't know anything about your food where it comes from, you know, who's producing it, who's shipping it, the quality of it, the nutrients of any of that. And and at every one of those moments, even though it's 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 the story is told to us as this wonderful thing and allows us to have cities and and states and education and all these wonderful things that we think about at the same time we the most basic part of being human nourishing ourselves and our families is becoming a mystery and we have to rely on other people. And believe it or not, the modern food industry jumps right in, fills that void and provides us with all kinds of people that can tell us what we should be eating um, and how we should be eating it and, and what we should be buying and who we should be supporting. So we no longer have that knowledge base that allows us to do exactly what you're, what you're saying, critically thinking about what real food really is and where it comes from. We don't know what a satiating, nourishing diet even feels like. I mean, and, and I truly believe if we got rid of all the other nonsense, all the noise on social media and, and, and diet books and documentary, if we get rid of all that. And some of it's fantastic. The majority of it's junk. But if we got rid of all that and had a clean slate with somebody and literally put nourishing food in front of them, and if they felt they could trust their senses, and if they were in tune with their senses, they would nourish themselves on, a, on an animal-based diet. I'm, I am 100% sure of that. The problem is that the answer, direct answer to your question is because everybody's telling us that if we want to do the things that we really care about, be healthy, look good, save the planet, you know, be ethical and all that, then we should eat a plant-based diet. And it's, and it's, it's the wrong way to do it. I will say, however, very quickly, and this is not necessarily a popular um, thing for me to say, but I, I fully mean this. I have incredible respect for most vegans. And the reason is because they are 
consciously making a decision about how to feed themselves because they care deeply about nutrition or the ethical treatment of animals or sustainability. The way they put it into practice is not the way I would put it into practice, but I love the fact that people are critically thinking that way. I just wish there was a way for all of us to literally come to the table together and have a real conversation, except for in, instead of fighting at these incredible extremes and both ends are kind of nonsense. Yeah, and that's kind of also why I, I love these ex-vegan turned animal-based or carnivore stories because it, it really takes a lot, I feel like, to because I feel like with vegan, it's like part of who you are and it's your beliefs and it's like your identity. You know, they feel so strongly about these things. And I agree with you, like it is respectable that, you know, they're so passionate about what they're doing. Now, I think I think they're <laughs> they're wrong, but I think it's so fascinating when they do like they can admit to themselves that, oh, this maybe isn't the most healthy and switch to an animal based way of eating because that has to be hard to like admit to yourself that oh maybe I'm not feeling well eating this way and to like make those changes so mm -hmm. to me that's like really fascinating and it, I've had very interesting conversations with vegans before and yeah I just that's and, and to go off court uh, Courtney and what you said I think the the <clears throat> the baseline and middle ground is I think carnivores who are intentional in being being carnivore or animal-based people who are very intentional about eating a meat-based animal-based diet is I think overwhelmingly we agree that the treatment of animals is probably the most important part of absolutely meat. and uh, with veganism I I have said this in comments before you know to to vegans who have commented on stuff I'm like we overwhelmingly agree that the treatment and the mass production of meat is not ethical like that that that's not where you're going to get the argument from it's more of the nutrition but I think something that and it's definitely being talked about on social media I think that the ethical treatment and the respect of animals is maybe something that's missing from the conversation mm -hmm. not so much anymore it's coming it's being brought up we just did a, a interview with a regenerative farmer and how important that is but that's like the middle ground right there is like we overwhelmingly agree that these animals are not treated you know the correct way Let's get to that. You know, like let's that that's where we can find the common ground. One hundred percent, and that's the most important point. And I'm so glad you brought that up. I would much. I, I've I've had incredible. You know, I, I've talked to vegans, and we've we've had a started to have a conversation, and they tell me what they care about. I'm like, look, let's sit down and have a conversation because you know what? I care about the same exact things. I I apply that passion in a in a different way, but I care about the same things. The, what I can't have a conversation around, and I think about, and this is where I think um, the, the the good carnivore message is getting missed. And like I said, I am I am primarily carnivorous in in my diet, not a hundred percent, but very very um, animal focused at least. Um, the problem is, I think the carnivore message is getting lost with people that say things like, "Don't don't touch my meat." I'm an American, so I should just be able to eat as much meat as I want, just, you know, because, you know, that's what we do. And I just we eat whatever I want. And and they're not thinking about their health. They're not thinking about the ethical treatment of the animals. You know, they're not thinking they just want to be able to go to Costco and buy, you know, sirloin steaks for a certain amount of money. That that's the problem. I think that kind of outlook and approach is really um, impacting the carnivore message because they're getting kind of stuck together. You know, car the, the people that really are the, the carnivores that I know are eating some of the most ethical meat 
are doing everything they can to at least you know get access to the most ethical meat possible. The gray area, the weird part is, you know, a lot of the carnivores I know have a um, uh, the financial means to be able to get that meat. So I also at the same time, and this is where it gets a little bit gray, but I think it's an important message. If you want to revolutionize your health, an animal-based diet is the, the the way to go. There's no doubt in my mind. But if you can't afford 100% grass-fed beef that's coming off of you know the farm that's around the block, and you and you have to get it at Costco, then get it at Costco. I mean, there is in the in the middle. If, if all you can do is get a Five Guys burger or whatever, because that's it, and you're going to take everything else off and eat the burger, but that's what you can afford at the moment, then start there. I mean, you can't. Nobody is able to take that leap, right? And 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 die from this terrible diet they've been on for 40 years and jump immediately into the most ethical, sustainable, nourishing diet possible. You know, it, it, there's so many barriers to doing that overnight. So take whatever steps you can start to make a difference and then start to incorporate all the other things, you know, that, that you can at the same time. And that's an industrial thing too. That, that, and I, I think when we talked to, what is it, Kevin from perennial farms. Mm -hmm. He said, there is, you know, a discussion in the regenerative ranching of how do we get to the point where you go to Costco and you don't even know that you're buying regenerative yep. beef and it has to be a shift. And it's going to be like that balance of, well, it's going to somewhere down the line, it's going to have to change and no, and not be a big deal. Like it's just going to be the, the norm yep. to be a regenerative ranch and this is where we get our meat but it has to be a shift in the industry and the more we discuss this the more likely that shift is to come within you know hopefully sooner than later you know it's so funny we lived in ireland for a year and i was writing my book the whole family was there and it grass-fed is not a thing in ireland like right. all beef is grass-fed in ireland the conversation they're having now is this conversation i want us to be able to get to in this country is the the term there is self-fed are the cows out grazing them they're all eating grass sometimes the grass is being brought to them and they're on like a concrete slab and the great but they had or they're out there grazing on their own but it's so interesting that they're at a completely different level now part of it is they have amazing grass all year round all over the you know all over ireland but it is really interesting that we're having here having the discussion we're having in this country and in other countries it's not even a discussion it's like the nuances of how are they grass-fed that they're focusing on but that's good. That means it's like, it's going to come. It's yeah. like, it, eventually it will come over here. Yeah. Hopefully it, it can be a little bit more no, normalized. I don't know if that's the right thing, but I think the cost is what um, is preventing it right now. And rightfully so. Obviously it's a high cost production to get them grass fed, grass finished, regenerative farming. Um, so I think if someone, cause this is what I do. I love my Costco revised. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Um, but it's also, you know, it helps my budget. So I think even if someone could just once in a while buy from a local regenerative farm, it might be more expensive, but I think it's a good way to kind of like vote for your vote with your sure. dollar. And maybe you can't do it all the time, but I feel like if everyone were to at least do it a little bit, like that would help and, and get things maybe rolling in the right direction. Because even if you're having Costco meats, like it's still gonna be very nutritious. But if we could get this ball rolling on the regenerative farming, I think that would be awesome to have it be more like mainstream, if you will. Oh, and the fact that we've even gone to the point, you're 100% right. And I don't mean to, to, to 
you know, the same thing bad about Costco meat. That's not, that wasn't the point. The point, <laughs> the point was um, that there's certainly different levels of these things. And I think we're all on the same page that we're do, trying to do the best that we can. But the fact that, that, that the conversation has switched from organic, you know, which has been so bastardized anyhow to a term like regenerative, which is so incredibly powerful. It means more than just obviously keeping what you have, but making it even better, right? That the, we're headed certainly in the right direction. Here, I think are two really, um, three, three, I think, um, tricks, not tricks, but approaches that can help with the budget piece of it. Uh, number one, um, one thing that's very interesting about this country compared to most other countries, uh, as far as hunting is concerned, is that hunting is incredibly accessible in this country. I mean, from a financial perspective, and uh, you know, you don't have to be super rich or own a bunch of land in order to go hunting here. In in Europe, in most places, in Germany, for example, even in, in England or Ireland, you need to be fairly wealthy and fairly powerful to be able to hunt. You know, you have to own land almost always. And there's a lot of, you have to have sponsors to get gun. There's a lot of things you have to do to be able to go hunting, making it inaccessible to the majority of the, of the people. Here, it's completely different. In fact, there's more people probably from a middle and lower class, uh, socioeconomic class, than from a higher class, you know, that are truly wealthy that are doing a whole bunch of hunting. So it is a wonderful way, number one, in, in my mind, hunting and foraging are the, are the two ways to and fishing are the ways to directly connect with your food in the same ways that our ancestors did, which is, and it's very economical. Number two, I am a huge advocate for a lot of reasons of, of um, eating completely nose to tail. You mentioned early and in, in, in before we started this, that you now I was just hunting with a bunch of amazing guys in Arkansas. And we were, I mean, we, we were hunting, we were butchering on site and using the every part of the animal and still making incredible, delicious nutrient dense, nourishing, bioavailable meals. And they just throw out some numbers, just people like, oh, I don't know, but how much are we really talking about? The average, a, a pig, we you, you use about 55% of a pig by weight. That, you know, that's how much ends up in the grocery store. That's how much the, the modern American consumer has access to if they go into the grocery store to buy pork. 55% of a pig by weight. That means we kill a pig and about half of it gets on the grocery store shelves. A cow is 50%. We kill a cow, 50% of it ends up in the grocery store. What about that other half? Well, that other half doesn't represent less than half of the nutrition of the animal. It doesn't even equal the same amount of the nutrition of the meat. It actually represents far more, not only in calories, but also amazing nutrition that you can't get from the meat. That's the part that the offal that's typically getting thrown away or sold in uh, in ethnic grocery stores or, or or sits in the back somewhere. That you know, it's super cheap, but what you get by by consuming it is so incredibly powerful from not only a nourishing perspective, but my gosh, if you have any arguments about somebody eating meat. Imagine if you're telling somebody you're eating 80% of that animal as opposed to 50% of that animal. And in fact, most of us aren't even eating 50% because we get the same loin or ribeyes or chicken breast or whatever of the same animal every time we go to the grocery store. Imagine if we're eating the entire thing from a nutritional and perspective, but also, like I said, ethical and um, uh, from a sustainable perspective, but also from an economic perspective, liver, heart, spleen, kidney, blood, marrow, that all of those things cost less than meat does. And the third thing, and I, I really think this is important on a lot of different levels. And again, people might say, ah, this is a little bit weird. I'm not going there, but butcher in your own house. 
Like it is, if anybody wants to just look at a chicken, for example, if you buy that chicken cut up and a chicken breast and chicken thighs and whatever, you look at the amount of per pound that it costs for a chicken breast and how much you would get if, you know, if you buy the whole chicken, several things happen immediately. Number one, you can take that extra money that you've saved and buy a better chicken. You can buy an organic free range chicken because you put that money into it. One chicken is not one meal. One chicken is like three meals. You got breast, you got legs, you got other meat, you got bones for bone broth, you got heart, you got gizzards, you got livers. I mean, it's amazing. What, and you got skin and you have fat from that one animal. So that's number one. Number two, what's great about bringing a chicken home. And I know that's for some of us might not be a big deal, but for so many houses, I taught college for 20 years, a probably 10% of the students that I taught have, have had a whole chicken come into their house. I mean, a whole chicken from the grocery store come into the house if they've even seen it. So bringing in a whole chicken into your house means not only did you save money and you get a lot of nourishing food, but you get to show your kids that there is a link between the chickens that are running around out on, you know, on the farm and what they're going to have on their plate, right? They get to see something that resembles an animal instead of a chicken breast, which is, you know, in a styrofoam package, they get to hear a knife against bone. And I know that sounds weird, but that's a sound that isn't in most houses any longer. That was a part of our existence for three and a half million years. They get to smell what it smells like for something sitting simmering in a pot, you know, all of those wonderful things that are part of it helps us connect our kids and people in our house to, uh, you know, to, to their food. But bring home a chicken or bring home a half a pig. My wife was a vegetarian for 15 years and she obviously is no longer a vegetarian. 100% on her own on her own account. But, uh, you know, I had nothing. I mean, I don't know if I had anything to do with it, but I certainly didn't force her to not be a vegetarian any longer. She just started craving meat when she was pregnant. And then the rest is history. But I suggested to her that we we're going to start bringing half pigs into our house, into our house. And she's like, no way, no way. And I, I, I fought this for several years. And then finally, when I did it for the first time, she was amazed at the end of the process. She's like, there was no blood. I'm like, yeah, there was no blood. She's like, I just thought there was going to be blood everywhere. I said, if there was blood everywhere, then the person who killed the pig didn't do their job right, right? There's no, there's no blood. It's an incredibly clean process. Now, we, you know, for the past 10 years, we've been regularly butchering pigs in our house, in our kitchen, right on the island in the middle. And I can get a half of a high quality pig from just up the road for $150. It will feed my family for like a month. I get the skin, I get the fat, I get the bones, I get the marrow, I get the organs, I get all the meat. It's a wonderful way to do it. And you don't have to do it all the time. You don't have to bring a whole pig in. You could bring a shoulder in. But if you're, if you're really worried, and there's a lot of reasons to do it, but if, since we're talking about economics, you can get a much higher quality whole or part animal than you can get of that same kind already cut into a little filet in a bag that you're going to bring home and put on the grill. Yeah, the thought of that, I'm going to be honest, makes me so squeamish to actually like do all that. I don't know why. Um, I mean, even I, I and I used to cook for a living, too. And even just like touching raw chicken, <laughs> it skews me <laughs> out. But it is a great idea. I didn't even I I didn't even think of that. Honestly, I haven't seen it offered, I guess. I mean, I see like my local farm. So you can um, buy like uh, quarters or whatever of a cow, but that's already coming to you. Cut up, yeah. Package, yeah. I didn't know I could like walk in with the head of a pig to my kitchen. <laughs> well, you know what? Let me tell you. This only can take a second. I promise. But it's, I think it's a context is so important with all of this. If I walked in with a pig when my wife and I were first together and set it on the table, 
there would I don't know if, I don't know if we'd still be here really. <laughs> I, the context wasn't right. It took several years of of talking and her understanding that it wasn't about me wielding a knife or feeling like a man or doing something. It was about me connecting with this food, us saving money, nursing the family, and that it wasn't bloody. I mean that all those things happened. But I used to teach for twenty years. I taught a class every fall. It was a primitive technology class. It was an archaeology class. It was very hands-on. And the students would make all sorts of things throughout the semester. They'd make stone tools. They'd make prehistoric pottery. they do all this stuff. And what they would do is they'd build all these tools that they used to then create a meal using them that we all enjoyed as kind of a final project. And one of the uh, things that we did was after they made their basic stone tools, I would bring in uh, deer. You know, I'd, I'd make sure we, we, we brought deer in and every two students had their own deer. And they would use the tools they created to butcher the deer. And I, every semester I had at least one vegetarian. Some semesters I had vegans in the class. And I said, listen, I don't, like, I can completely respect what you're doing. I don't need you to participate, but I need you to at least be here because this is about seeing how efficient and effective these three million year old tools really are. So you don't have to touch anything when you do that part, but you're welcome to. You at least need to be here. 20 years I taught that class every semester except for one when I was on sabbatical. And there hasn't been, a, and, I, and I completely meant that like they didn't have to be in it. Most of the times they would stand back in the beginning, but the context was created. They knew they were in a safe place. They knew they didn't have to do anything and they still could get a good grade. There was never a case when a student didn't end up elbow deep inside of that deer with a stone tool, vegans and vegetarians alike. And it was about that context. It wasn't, first of all, it wasn't bloody. It was rooted in prehistory. It was rooted in nutrition. It was rooted in an important dietary sorts of information and they were elbow deep into it. So I do think that context is really, really important. That's one reason why we, we, we hold a lot of butchering classes here and we'll get a lot of um, adults in, but we get a lot of families coming in as well. Ooh, when did you take a class field trip, Devin? <laughs> oh, I mean, you're only probably a couple hours away from me. so I could I'm probably... only a few hours. You should definitely yeah, come. Yeah, totally. I would love to, to do that. But when you said that there wasn't a case where they didn't end up, it almost makes me think like of how natural this is. Like it really yeah. is such a natural um, inclination to our person, like to being a person to just participate in the behavior because it is so primal and it's just so who we are. And I don't mean like in a, like a barbaric sense, no. but like, it just, it feels natural, you know, to, to, to participate in that. I don't know. I'm <laughs> laughing because you should have seen me taking the neck and the gizzards and whatever out of the turkey for Thanksgiving. I think I screamed. I don't know why it's so like icky to me, but I'm definitely like a little intrigued. Maybe I need to get over her earlier. She's like the, she's the minority. Here. <laughs> I have to tell you chickens and turkeys, to be honest, they freak me out a little bit too. I mean, <laughs> do it, but compared to a pig or a deer or something like that. Oh my gosh. They're like sticky and weird, but, um, but it's it is worth it still. I mean, it re really is. Come come out one time when we do a pig. It, you you'd love it. In fact, we're doing. Do you know what class we offered? And um, this year for the first time, and it did so well that we had to offer another section of it. Is we live in an area here on the eastern shore of Maryland where there's a lot of hunting. There's a lot of deer hunting and a lot of waterfowl hunting and a lot of geese, a lot of ducks. And unfortunately. One of the things I don't think we recognize that's happening to us in the grocery stores is um, 
you know, there's so many intentional things in the grocery stores that the modern food industry is doing to us that those are getting more and more obvious. But one of the unintended things I think is happening is just by going in a grocery store, uh, the consumer gets an image in their head of what food is and what food isn't. If it's in the grocery store, it's food. If it's not in the grocery store, it must not be food because it's not in the place where I get my food. And as far as animals are concerned, this is even carried over into one of the most primal things we do is still today is hunting. And for most hunters today, unfortunately, because they're getting all of that feedback from the, I mean, most hunters still buy meat, right? They still buy beef. They still buy pork. They, by going into the grocery store and seeing the different cuts, they're mimicking that with the deer that they get. So they cut the deer up and they keep the same pieces, right? Oh, this is a loin. I know what the pork loin is. They'll keep the loin from the, maybe we'll keep the ribs, but we'll keep the shoulders. We'll keep whatever. And that's the part that they see at the grocery store. Uh, with ducks, we see things like duck breast all over the place or duck legs, maybe, but um uh, from an activity like hunting, where we would expect it to connect us so really well to our food, which it does, when by the time the butchering part comes, it, we revert back to what we see in, in modern approaches to butchering. So most deer hunters only keep the same cuts of the deer that they representative of in the grocery store. Most, unfortunately, most duck and geese hunters will just breast out the bird and the rest gets thrown away. And it's the way that, you know, and it's not necessarily because they're lazy. It's not necessarily because they don't, you know, they consciously are trying to do something. It's just because that's the way they're being taught. And that's what's happened for now, in some cases, two generations. We are talking about a massive amount of nutrition that we're missing from these animals and flavor and textures and aromas and all those other wonderful things. So we're holding a class where um, uh, we're focusing on how to field dress and butcher animals, uh, deer and, and ducks and geese mostly, uh, if we're going to eat the entire thing, and then how to transform all that, how to butcher it and how to transform it and cook it into, you know, amazing dishes like, you know, pâtés and terrines and confits and all these other sorts of things. So in hopes that it's going to start making it. And I tell you, I could, I was so thrilled that it, um, we have so many people interested. That's awesome. Well, yeah. I am one of those. So I'm going to have <laughs> to look that up because yeah, you're only a couple hours away from me. And it's so interesting. We moved from, a, you know, the big city <clears throat> to this rural area and everyone that I know goes hunting because it's hunting, mm -hmm. you know, it's, and you know, our neighbors, they, they get the camper up every Friday and they're going hunting. And my friends that I've made at the gym, they're like, Oh, I won't be here tomorrow. Got to go hunting. And so <laughs> for me, it's very different because we lived in the city for four or five years. And now I'm like, well, this is like really like a thing here. And of course I grew up in a rural area my family hunted, but to go from that, it's like, it's a lifestyle here in this rural yeah. area. They are, it is ride or die hunting season and they're going out, which is great. That's wonderful. That's what we want. So absolutely. Yeah, we're not exposed to that here in Southern California. <laughs> we go to the beach, <laughs> we surf. Yeah, none of that. Um, but it is fascinating. My my grandpa, when he was still alive, he lived in Utah and he, he would hunt all the time. He would hunt, he would fish. And he also like worked part-time just for fun at a slaughterhouse. So he was like in it deep. That's and awesome. Oh, I wish he was still alive because that would be fun to kind of like, now that we're on like the same page, I feel like now I wouldn't be afraid to eat his venison burgers that he would make us. Um, so yeah, that's very cool. Um, Devin, do you is there anything else you want to talk like about this before we dive into like a little bit more on like plants and stuff no i do know do you want to just dive into that question since we had sure. discussed talking about that okay transition from the very we could talk <laughs> about this for hours and hours and that's the problem that we run into is we're like oh we want to talk about a b c d 
and then we get stuck on A and barely make it to B. So one of the things that you talk about often, especially I've seen in your reels on Instagram is anti-nutrients in, mm. in, in produce. And people, especially on TikTok, think you're like, if you talk about anti-nutrients in plants, almost look at you like you're delusional. Like this is nonsense. This is crazy. I myself uh, started carnivore because I had some really serious kidney issues. So of course, to me, I was like, okay, the, once I did the research, the oxalates, it was like immediately, it just clicked. Can you talk about why a plant has anti-nutrients? And then I would love to get into like, maybe like the most common ones and the most common foods that we don't even think about. And, and almonds too. Add almonds to that list. Cause I know you've yeah. got a lot of, so, um, I've had a lot of my almonds. own issues. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is one of the most important things I think we should be talking about in the modern dietary world today is the dangers that plants have. I will say this as a sort of, um, quick side note. I do believe that there are ways of consuming certain plants in your diets. If you want to do it, um, and there's certain benefits, right? So, but the benefits, the the interesting thing about humans is that we are incredibly complex creatures, especially when it comes to food and diet and health. And nourishing ourselves means more than just nourishing us biologically. We have to nourish ourselves in all the ways, emotionally, culturally, all, all the ways that we need to, 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 to achieve full nourishment. For some of us, for a lot of reasons, in, including an, uh, plants in there, uh, may help us reach that level of nourishment beyond just the biological piece. I mean, I, there are certain plants I love the smell of, I love the flavor of, I love the texture of, it reminds me of being a kid, all those, all those things. Um, that said, there are ways of doing it in, in a healthy way. And there are ways of doing it that are incredibly harmful. The biggest mistake that I made, I think, in, and truly, in, and I'm 49 now, and I've made a lot of nutritional mistakes. I think the biggest mistake that I've made and this is a very dangerous thing to do is back when I thought plants were so incredibly healthy. And uh, it was, and I walked into the grocery store, I knew that the best thing to do was to go around the outside of the grocery store and stay from the processed food in the middle. But I also got that idea that when I walked into the produce section, I could turn my brain off. Like I could stop because I would always think about food and diet and health so much that it was exhausting. And when I walked into the produce section, I could say, okay, I don't have to think right now. I know vegetables are good for me. Some of them are good. All of them, you know, eating more must be even better. So I just would turn my brain off and start loading my cart with everything. And that is incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous to stop thinking about food in general, right? And, and do that. But it's incredibly dangerous in the plant area because they can cause so many issues. All, and I know that I'm, not, I'm repeating what other people have said, I'm sure on this, but all plants have some level of toxin in them. Some of those toxins are so bad that they'll kill you outright, like within minutes or hours. Some of them are so bad that you'll come close to death, but your kidneys and your liver will shut down and you wish you were dead, right? Certain mushrooms, for example. Some of them on the other end of the scale are the toxins are so low that it's fairly benign and there's not much to worry about. The most dangerous ones are actually the ones in the middle, the ones where you're eating them and the effects of eating them, you don't see in an hour, you don't see in a day, you don't even see in a week. And because of that, that what's so dangerous about that is your mind can't say, okay, I ate this and I feel this way, so I'm not gonna eat that again. It's I ate this, eh, I don't feel that bad. I'll eat it again and I'll eat it again. And months, years, or decades later, the cumulative effects of consuming that in your diet 
you know, starts to add up. And then you're like, what's happening to me? And you can't put two and two together. Thankfully, there's people like Sally Norton, for example, who are finally bringing out the dangers of oxalates and, and making, it, um, making it more apparent. Plants have toxins for several reasons. Plants create these, these secondary compounds for, for several reasons. One of them is these toxins help keep them safe. Since they can't move or run away, they have to protect themselves. So they do it through chemical and biological warfare. And now, um, in many cases, the one thing we have to remember is, and, and this I think is a helpful way to sort of just wrap our brains around the idea that yes, plants have toxins, different parts of plants have different levels of toxins because of what they need to do. Um, and there are some you know, parts of plants that aren't very toxic because of, of the same reason. All plants are trying to do, so plants are not put on this world to feed us. Animals are not put on this world to feed us either, but plants are not put, put on this world to feed us. Plants are on in this world, they just happen to be here. And the only thing that they need to do is survive. They need to reproduce viable offspring that reproduces with viable offspring. And if they get that right, they continue. And if they don't get it right, they become extinct, right? That's like any other uh, living organism in this world. The way they do that is to ensure that they can reproduce and their, their offspring can protect itself long enough until it can reproduce and that can continue, continue to happen. They do this through chemical warfare. Now, if you think about plant parts, there are some plant parts that the plant needs to protect and keep things away from it, and some plant parts that plants typically need some assistance with and actually want to draw other organisms towards it. So underground storage organs like roots and corms and tubers, these um, really energy-rich, think potato-like parts of a plant are, you know, those kinds of plants will spend the uh, spring and the summer storing all sorts of energy so that when they don't have leaves in the winter, they can feed off that energy for the fall and the winter, and then they can start, you know, send out leaves and shoots again and continue that process. Well, that's an incredibly important part of that plant. If that plant dies, it can't reproduce. So typically they're full of toxins and the most toxic part of it is on the outside. It's the skin. So again, think potatoes, even though I grew up in the seventies and eighties and we were told the most nutritious part of the potato is the skin. I don't know if there are more nutrients in that potato skin than in the potato itself, but it doesn't matter. It's not worth the cost because the toxic load in that skin is so much higher than in the middle of that potato that you got to get rid of that skin. And it makes sense because that root is trying to protect itself from insects, from fungus, from anything trying to attack it. So it should have the highest load. The shoots and the leaves, it can go either way depending on the plant and the season, but typically they have a level of toxin in there that's going to keep other animals from eating it until it's mature enough to be able to reproduce viable offspring. So there, you got to be careful with those too. Flowers are typically not that toxic. And because, I mean, think about what, it, uh, you know, the plant is putting energy and effort into that flower to look pretty, to smell good and have wonderful sorts of things about it that attracts pollinators like bees, for example. It's not going to do the plant really any good if they do something that's going to kill the bee and it's not going to be able to pollinate. So that's part of reproduction. Typically, they're fairly safe. Fruits, again, fruits are there. The job of a fruit is to attract, right? You want to attract an animal to come and eat that fruit. And so typically fruits, when they're ripe, and that's, a, that's an important piece, when the fruit is fully ripe, it is usually fairly low in toxins. It usually looks good, smells good, and tastes good. Seeds, on the other hand, are the complete opposite, right? The seeds are the babies, whether it's a, a grain of wheat, a, you know, wheat berry, or whether it's a, a watermelon seed, 
they're the babies. So they're going to be heavily protected um, because that's, you know, the babies and they're protecting the babies until they can support new life on their own. And if you think about seeds and grains and nuts and legumes, so all the babies of the plants, they are physically and chemically designed to withstand the digestive tract of animals. I mean, think about a watermelon seed. It is shaped like a bullet so it can shoot right through your digestive tract. And in fact, some plants are, the seeds are set up that they can't uh, germinate unless they've actually been through the digestive tract of an animal. They are heavily protected with chemicals and um, they're supposed to pass through your digestive tract. Now think about modern humans, for example. We are now um, most of us have such a grain-based diet, whether it's wheat or whether it's maize, corn or maize or, or what have you, uh, rice, you know, we are taking the most heavily guarded part of that plant, the most heavily protected part of that plant, and trying to base our nutrition on that. And that is a very difficult thing to do. Now, can you do things to those seeds, nuts, and legumes and, and grains to make them a little bit healthier and release the nutrients better? Absolutely. It takes a lot of work. Can we do it? Yes. Um, is that the healthiest thing we should be focusing on? Absolutely not. I mean, they are the most chemically defended part of a plant. And we are trying to extract, you know, most of the nutrition that most of us get on a daily basis from that part. It's insane. But I think that if you think about a plant, what it's trying to do, how it's trying to survive, um, again, flowers, usually not that toxic, fruit, usually not that toxic. Roots can be highly toxic, stems and leaves can be toxic, and the seeds, grains, nuts, and legumes are usually very highly loaded with toxins. Okay, I think we that... both have like probably a million questions. <laughs> well, I'm just like, shit, like the peanut butter and jelly that I made my kids the other day, I'm just poisoning them with because <laughs> 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 they're not about... strict carnivore. But I do have a question though, real quick. Well, you go ahead I my question is about fruit that has seeds in it yeah. you know like where's that line because especially in the carnivore space right now there's like this huge trend um I feel like when carnivore kind of first came around with Sean Baker it was like animal products only and now we've kind of evolved to this very Paul Saladino approach where we're eating a ton of fruits or I mean some veggies that like are technically fruits too I guess but where where's the line like where do we draw the line because I I had some medical issues I had you know kidney issues and my doctor had told me you cannot eat fruit with seeds in it he's like strawberries like they're your kryptonite like you know what and this is very tailored to my issue mm -hmm. and I was like okay we're done like stay away from that stuff so I like kind of figured there was something to that but like where's the line get crossed you know right, like so, <laughs> I want to make I want to remind everybody that I am not a medical doctor um, or a dietitian <laughs> or even a nutritionist so understand where I'm coming from when I answer these things and number one where I'm coming from is I have spent the majority of my life as an archaeologist looking through ancestral diets, um, look, using the archaeological record to understand them. And a large part of the last 10 years of my life, uh, spending time learning from and cooking with indigenous and traditional groups all over the world, right? So uh, from that first perspective is one of the ways that I sort of evaluate a question like that. More recently, um, the, the restaurant that we've opened is focused on using ancestral approaches to food to make food as safe and nourishing as possible. And we're doing it not only, I, I've done that for my family for many years, but we're doing it on, on, on a commercial scale now, which is really, really eye-opening. So I am not a medical doctor, but I, I do look, you know, my first answer to that is, hey, you know, how would we do this as a hunter-gatherer? How did ancestral groups do it? You know, so um, 
and also some work with oxalates, which, which we can talk about because that's important in this conversation. Number one, it's, it's very interesting to see how one or two people can really transform a trend. Uh, and the fruit thing is very interesting <laughs> to right now, uh, whether it be liver or fruit. But anyhow, so the answer, the, the first thing is when we picture, if we're using an ancestral approach to food, we also have to make sure that the food we're talking about, we're, to, you know, we're talking about the same thing. The fruit that our ancestors were eating looks nothing like the fruit in the grocery store on a lot of different levels. The fruit in the grocery store is a ton bigger, it's a ton sweeter, and a ton less bitter. You know, wild fruits are smaller, they have less flesh, they have a lot less sugar in them, and typically have um, other tastes to them other than just sweetness, which means it takes a lot of work to get at the the flesh of that uh, a lot of times, the seeds proportionally to the flesh are usually a ton bigger. So, you know, and, and there's other things preventing us from eating massive quantities of them, right? So if we're saying, hey, you know, we can eat all the bananas we want because they're an ancestral food, they're nothing like an ancestral banana. Uh, a, a quick example is I was in Kenya years ago and uh, we were in this one area we were traveling and, and we stopped the, stopped the car and got out and a woman I was with said, that's a wild orange. Like where? And she pulls this wild orange out and it was a wild orange and it was um, the full grown fruit was like the size of my pinky nail. And it looked like an orange. It smelled like an orange and you ate it kind of like a kumquat. It was, I still taste it. I mean, it was, in, it wasn't that sweet. And it was incredibly bitter. Like you might eat a couple of them, but you wouldn't eat many more. Than them. And when I was with the Hadza, the fruits that they ate, you would eat it and picture a cherry that the pit, was almost the entirety of that cherry. Like the flesh on it was like a 16th of an inch. That's the kind of fruits we're eating. We'd eat that and we'd spit out this big pit and we'd have a tiny bit of flesh. So were people eating fruit? Absolutely. But nowhere's near the amount of fruits. And, and when we did do it, the amount of, of, of sugar that's, um, that's coming in with it at the same time. On top of that, as we bred these fruits to be bigger, more uniform, be full of water and be full of sugar, we've also bred out a lot of the nutrition. There's a great book um, called Eating on the Wild Side. I don't know if you guys have ever read it. It's a fantastic book. The first chapter is all about um, wild plants and every other chapter after that is about a food that's in our diet today, like an apple, for example. And they talk about the, hist um, the history of the apple, but the nutritional value, how it's changed. Um, and, and, and all of, but an apple in like 1950 has some, had something like three times the amount of nutrition that an apple today does. And today it has like four times the amount of sugar in it. So you, to, in order to get the same amount of nutrition from eating an apple that say your grandfather had, you have to eat three apples and you also get all that other sugar and all the other things with it at the same time. So there's, there's, there's all of that. With that said, the question about the seeds, I think it depends. Now I'll, I'll bring up a, uh, an oxalate issue here uh, as, a, as a great example. Kiwis, if you look at a kiwi, the kiwi seeds are sort of in that, you know, mucilaginous sort of protective thing. And if you eat a kiwi, if you grab the kiwi and ate it, you'd get the carbohydrates, you'd get some of the nutrition, you'd get the flavor, the texture, and you'd poop the seeds out like any other animal would, right? You, those seeds are too small for you to sit there and bite on every one of them. The, most of them are going, they're small, they're going to get unchewed and they're going to pass through your digestive tract. Kiwi seeds are loaded with oxalates. I mean, loaded with oxalates. And one of the things that Sally Norton writes about in her book is that she's had clients who um, will eat kiwis 
and be fine. And then all of a sudden they'll put a kiwi in a shake and they'll put it in the blender. And when they put it in the blender, it you know explodes the seeds. All those oxalates are now free and they're consuming them in a way that the oxalates go into their body. And, they have, and, and she talks about people whose mouths just immediately swell up when they have the kiwi seeds. So I do think it depends. If you eat an apple and swallow the seeds, the seeds are going to come out the other end. I think the strawberry seeds are coming out the other end, right? And if you put it in a shake, it's a little bit different because you put it in a blender. Um, so what we're doing with the seeds, like again, like a grain, for example, we're taking that seed and we're grinding it up and accessing it on the inside, which is different than if you were kind of, you know, swallowing these things whole. Not that that can't be dangerous. At the same time, something like a red kidney bean, three raw red kidney beans will land you in the hospital. You know, whether you chew them up or not, they're, they're just so loaded with toxins. They need to be soaked. They needed to be, need to be cooked in order to be even close to safe enough for eating it. Um, the fruit thing is a weird one. I do think, um, like anything else, we're overdoing some of these things. And the problem is we're creating, we're creating, we're so disconnected that we're creating questions about how much food we should be eating because we don't know. Like, you know, if, if you were not, not, we mentioned almonds, for example, if I said, Hey, you know, there's an almond tree, go eat some almonds. And you're like, okay, well, this is the time of year when almonds are there. And you go find the almond tree and you, you grab the almonds and you start harvesting them and you, you start cracking them open and getting some nuts out of it. And you eat a few of them, ah, no big deal. And then maybe did that a little bit when you found the almonds and then you don't have any almonds for an entire year because the tree isn't producing almonds until the next year, you're fine. But now we have bags of almonds shelled for us this big at Costco. And I'm not, I'm not trying to BJ's, whatever. I'm <laughs> trying to kill Costco. <laughs> but, um, you know, and then we have to ask the question, how many almonds is safe enough for me to eat? It's, it's a crazy question. You know, we do that with, with organ meats and livers. And, you know, we have, you know, people telling us now we should be eating massive quantities of liver and bull testicles every day, you know, or whatever, which is silly. And, you know, we can't, we could, if we had enough money, we can go to Whole Foods and buy 10 pounds of chicken liver and get no other part of a chicken and then come home and look at it and say, how much liver am I supposed to eat? If you ask somebody 5,000 years ago, how much chicken or how much liver you should be eating, they'd look at the animal they just killed and said, however much liver is right there. And then I'll eat the spleen, the kidney and the heart and all the meat and the marrow and make stuff with the bones and do all this. And then I'm going to go kill another animal. Like what kind of question is that? But now we we've separated this stuff, put them in grocery stores. And we have other people telling us that we should eat, you know, honey and fruit now because we can on carnivore and do all well, and then we have to ask those questions. I don't eat a lot of plants, but I have been foraging since I was 10 years old. And I still teach foraging tours every single year. And I think it's an, even though I don't eat that many plants, I think it's such an incredible um, thing to do is to go foraging because it helps you reconnect with seasons and the localness of plants and understand that, you know, the different life cycles of plants and plant toxins. And even if you're never going to eat any plants or not many, something like that is as powerful as hunting is. And it helps you go into that produce section and say, mm, these fruits are different than they should be. Any of the fruits I find in the wild look different than this. And you know what? They're only available at this month or they're only available for this season. Maybe I really shouldn't be, you know, thinking about eating fruit in January, you know, or, or, or whatever. Yeah, that's that, such a good point. Sorry. Like, no, go ahead. Because when you're saying like, okay, how much liver or whatever do we eat? But if we had the whole animal there in front of us, that just answers the question. So having everything conveniently handed to us, yeah, it's a total detachment. Um, I'm curious, Ben, 
because you're not strict carnivore, what what do you eat and like what other non-animal products do you incorporate? That's a great question. So I eat, my family and I, we eat a lot of animals are the basis, animal and animal-based foods are the basis for just about everything that we eat. So we eat a lot of meat, we eat a lot of fat, we eat as many organs as make sense, like I mentioned earlier, since we do so much butchering it's a little bit easier to figure out what makes a little bit more sense, right? Because we have what's there. Um, we do a lot of fermented dairy. So we don't, first of all, my kids went from breast milk to raw milk their entire lives. Um, now we're at a place and I do, I absolutely love raw milk, but one step better than raw milk is raw fermented dairy. So kefir, real yogurts, um, real traditional cheeses. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but uh, fermented dairy, uh, fermented butter, we, eat, we we consume a lot of that. Any of the fats that we eat are animal-based, except for a few cold applications. The only thing we cook in is, is animal fat, but as far as cold applications go, we do use a little bit of olive oil or a little bit of avocado oil um, and a little bit of coconut oil and cold things like mayonnaise and, and, and that sort of thing. We eat a lot of eggs. Um, as far as other plants are concerned, May I do do some fermented vegetables. I love sauerkraut, for example. Um, uh, I I do onions. I do garlic. That's that's the main. Those are the main ones, really. Uh, some other things, but depending on the, the situation. But typically, all, almost always, the, the vegetables are processed in a very particular way that helps detoxify them and it, it releases their nutrients. And depending on the plant, the toxin, it can be different things. But for the most part, it's um, it's almost always fermentation. Not always, but mostly. I don't eat many grains at all. When I do, it's typically maize. It's been nishtamalized, which is an ancestral process. Um, and when I do eat wheat, which is very, very rare, it's been through a full, full, wild, long fermented sourdough process. I mean, we actually have a sourdough bakery as a part of our as a part of our restaurant. Um, even though I don't eat much of it, if you're going to eat bread, that is definitely the healthiest way to go. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. That all sounds great. Um, gosh, I haven't had kefir in a while. I used to like pound that when I started. So is it something with, cause you said fermented vegetables. So is it something with the fermenting process that like will handle some of the anti-nutrients then like why? Yeah, it depends on the, it depends on the anti-nutrients. So, um, fermentation will help with many of them. It is, that isn't the, the cure-all for everything, but that is a good place to start. I haven't read about heard about, witnessed a traditional diet anywhere in the world that doesn't have fermentation at its core. Fermented vegetables, fermented dairy, fermented meats, you know, all of it, fermented grains or, or sugars or alcohol. But uh, that's a very, very important piece. The act of soaking, especially when it's fermenting, really helps with a lot of the anti-nutrients. And, and if you're thinking about nuts and seeds and legumes, grains in general, it, it, those here's here's one way I like to explain it. If you take a, a wheat berry, for example, and an egg, there's there's several things you can do to, to compare the two of them. And one of them is they're both the babies, right? They're, they're going to be the babies. They're going to be the new, the new generation, right? Uh, they also can really be on a macroscopic level divided into three parts. An egg has a shell on the outside. It's got the white and it's got the yolk. The shell is a protective mechanism. The, the white is just kind of the, the filler fluff part. And the yolk is like the nutrient-dense, amazing, almost valuable part. On a wheat berry or a grain in general, you have a very similar thing. The bran is the outside sort of shell protective mechanism. The endosperm is where all the starch is. And the germ is like the yolk. It's the most powerful, amazing, nutrient-dense 
pack part of it. Um, that's where the similarities kind of end. That egg, if I left it on the counter, the really protective mechanism of that egg, even though it's very thin, is the shell. And the shape of that shell makes it really hard to, 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 to break. And it will sit on a counter for, a, or it'll sit for about two weeks and still be able to germinate. You know, you, you could still, you know, a rooster could come along and still make a baby chicken out of it. Um, but that's it. After two weeks, it's done. That grain, that wheat barrier, that grain of maize or barley or whatever could sit on this counter right here for thousands of years. We have taken grains from archaeological sites that are 8,000 years old and planted them and they germinated and grew a new plant. Now, how does that happen? Well, that's because of all those anti-nutrients, all those that chemical warfare is being fought, a battle is being fought on the outside um, of that grain and keeping it safe until that plant will not sprout unless many of those anti-nutrients are deactivated. So to, to make a grain a safe, safer, you have to put it in the environment where it thinks it's going to be able to support new life. And then it lets its defenses down. So that's why soaking is so very important. I mean, think of what you do with a seed. You put it in warm, moist earth and let it sit there. And during that process, it soaks. In many cases, it starts to ferment and then it'll eventually sprout. So a soaked, any of those things I mentioned earlier is better than a dry one that's just been ground into flour or whatever it's going to be. A, a, um, a fermented one is even better and a fermented one that sprouted is even better. So like the gold standard, I just, I just answered an email from somebody today about this. If you're going to make sourdough bread, like the gold standard is to take um, grains that have been sprouted and then turned into flour and then put them through the, the sourdough process to make the bread. I mean, that is in my mind, the gold standard. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to eat that to be healthy, right? But if you are going to eat bread, that bread is the safest, most nourishing form um, of something that you can put into your body. So when it lets its defenses down, it um, and again, fermentation is a huge piece of this, then it will um, it'll usually end up being safer for most of the um, most of the toxins, but not all of them. And that's where oxalates are so problematic. There are so many ways that our ancestors have figured out how to make plants safer and more nourishing to consume. And for most toxins, there are things you can do to them. But sometimes it's things like drying, sometimes it's soaking, sometimes it's leaching, sometimes it's fermentation, sometimes it's nystomalization, sometimes it's a combination of all kinds of things, sometimes it's just cooking. But oxalates are one that I have not been able to find a real way to mitigate the dangers of oxalates. You can do a few things. You know, you can eat some with the dairy and the calcium will bind with the oxalates. Um, there, I found two peer-reviewed papers that suggest that fermentation helps a little, but not in any meaningful way that will allow you to just go ahead and eat spinach and almonds and think that everything's fine. Okay. The oxalate thing, like, is like, I'm like, preach it. I have had kidney and urinary tract problems my entire life, my entire hmm. life. And it wasn't until like two years ago that it was like getting to the point where I'm like, I, I need to be on painkillers. Like this is unbearable. Wow. Like the kidney stones. Um, and no, I, I thank God I found him by the grace of God. My urologist was on it. The first thing he hmm. did was put me on an elimination diet. He was like, you, here's a list of all these foods and you cannot have any of them. I mean, and it was like, you know, natural things too. Like, oh my God, strawberries, you know, like I'm keto, I can do strawberries. You know what I mean? And so I got rid of all of them 
But the one thing that I was so angry wasn't on there, which I think was like the main culprit is I was keto. I was drinking unsweetened almond milk and putting Mm. almond flour and everything. And it wasn't until I was like, you know what? I'm still having like these symptoms. Um, I'm going to go carnivore. It wasn't until I cut that stuff out, the, the almonds and the almond flour. And I mean, I was doing like macadamia nuts all the time, all the things that I stopped having all the kidney issues. I mean, I'm, I was 29 and I had two enlarged kidneys. So, I mean, this was not great for me. Um, but I just like, no one ever told me about about these oxalates. And even my urologist, who was like, the first thing you need to do is get rid of all these foods. He did not say the the almonds. And I wish that someone would have told me that because I feel like my problem would have gone away a lot sooner. So how long was it between when he gave you that list and when you found out that almonds were a problem as well? You know what? I don't think, I actually think it was when we started filming this podcast when someone, I think it was either our first or second episode where someone said something and I was like, it was the almonds. You know what I mean? Like I didn't even, that was the only thing. That was the only thing you didn't give up before carnivore. That, that would have been yeah, I was still incorporating. Yeah. Cause I had given up so much foods. And then at the point, you know, where it was like, well, I'm eating so clean. I'm, you know, strict keto. I'm not doing fruits anymore. And then at that point I was like, why well, in Brussels sprouts, I was eating a lot of Brussels sprouts too. But then I think back on it and it was probably like what, six, five, six months before I was like, that was it. It was mm. all the almonds that I was eating. Cause I mean, almond flour and meatloaf, almond, yep. you know, almond milk in my, my shakes, almond milk in my coffee, you know, all the things. Um, but no one knows that like the oxalates, they will absolutely get you. Um, it was just something no one talked to me about until I started doing research. And I'm like, yeah, I have an oxalate problem for sure. Yes. And I'll tell you, it is so many things changed about my health when I started to eat more ancestrally um, about, you know, 15 to 20 years ago, I lost a bunch of weight. A lot, lot, lot of my metabolic issues, you know, resolved themselves. Everything seemed to be great, except for I had just a few medical mysteries. Like nobody could explain it. And in fact, I would go in and the doctors would make me feel stupid because they couldn't find the cause for it. So then I must be making it up or whatever. And it, every one of them completely resolved when I took oxalates out of my diet. I mean, completely. I mean, and I'm talking life altering, like you mentioned, I mean, changing from, and physically it changed, but mentally, you know, just not to have that daily pain and that daily worry, like what really is going on with me has transformed my life. And it started with a five minute conversation with Sally Norton about five years ago. And I'm again, preaching that whole thing then I'm, and there's so many nuances, so many things to learn, but I will say, you know, these are the ones that I found are are going to be very problematic that are in our diets all the time. Obviously, spinach, Swiss chard, rhubarb on on that sort of plant side. And from the nut side, almonds are the worst. But at the same time, um, there are two things that are in many of our diets a lot that I don't know if we realize how bad they are. Sesame seeds and poppy seeds are off the charts high. And um, not that many of us are eating many of those things, unless we're eating tahini. Tahini is made 100% from sesame. It's just ground up sesame seeds. And and that I think for anybody having hummus or eating anything else with tahini in it, you need to really, really, really be aware of that. Now there are, and and one reason I bring that up here is because we do a sourdough um, everything bagel here. And we make everything 100% from scratch here, except for two things, our everything spice and our old base spice. And the everything spice um, was killing me when, and when I found out the oxalate content and that I'm like, we, we can't, we can't do this. We've got to make up our own. So we now have come up with a, 
um, a very low oxalate version of everything spice, which is amazing, but it doesn't have poppy or sesame seeds in it. And, um, and I think, and then that, that's number one, anything that we use. So anyhow, the reason it was a big deal is because if you looked at the, if you eat an everything bagel, people listening is probably don't, but maybe your kids do. Um, there's like a tablespoon or two tablespoons of seasoning on top of some of those bagels. It's just spread out over the bagel, but there's more there than you think. They're getting a massive dose of oxalates when they eat that everything seasoning. The other thing, um, so, you know, we, there's some substitutes we can use there. But the other thing that's very um, interesting, and I think people, if people love tahini and they're, maybe they're doing some kind of a keto thing and they're eating um, hummus or whatever, um, you can make it with sunflower seeds as opposed to sesame seeds. And you won't even know the difference. And it's very, very low oxalate. So good seeds that are very low oxalate are um, pumpkin and sesame seeds are very, very low in, in oxalates. Um, pecans, believe it or not, are fairly low as far as nuts are concerned. Um, pistachios are, are fairly low as well. Pine nuts are off the charts high, off the charts high. So if you're eating pesto, take a second look and get like a pumpkin seed pesto or pistachio pesto, which like we make here. I was, I, and, and I didn't even know that I was eating pesto constantly, pesto chicken constantly on yep. keto, like by the bucket at Costco, I would just put it on everything. So now there's another ringer right there too. I mean, it is. It, and if anybody's, listen, this is what I, I, again, I'm not a medical doctor at all. Some of these stories are anecdotal. Some of them I feel very passionate about because they were, they've happened to me and, and like you in your, in your story as well. This is what I'd like to say. Um, <clears throat> and, I, and I've said this many times before. We are animals. Like we humans are animals. And because of the drastic changes in our diets that have been normalized, we don't see that they're drastically changed anymore, like just eating chicken breast or eating massive quantities of almonds or spinach or whatever it is. And we've normalized it in our diets. At the same time, the cumulative effects of these things in our diets, like oxalates, um, have are, are, are wrecking havoc on so many people that we've normalized what those symptoms are. And they seem to be normal. We are wild animals. We should live like other animals do. Other animals live incredible lives and then keel over dead. Like that's what they do. What, no matter what their lifespan is of that particular animal, they live these amazing lives and keel over dead. That's what I want to do. That's what I hope to God my life is like, that I'm going to live this amazing life and then keel over dead. But that's not what we do. We've normalized dying for 40 years of our life. We've normalized you know, creaking when we go up the stairs and we're 40 years old or 50 years old, we get out of the bed and our feet are swollen every single morning. We have all this joint pain. Oh, my neck. And that's the way it's supposed to be because I'm getting old. No, it is not the way it's supposed to be. And listen, I don't know who you are or what you're, and I certainly am not qualified to say what that is, even if I did know you, but I will tell you that oxalates can be one of the things causing that. And it's one of the things that's so prevalent in our diet that even people like, you know, you guys and me who are so diet conscious had massive quantities of them in our diets on a regular basis for so many years. It's worth at least looking into. Do a deep Google dive into oxalates. Look at Sally Norton's website. She just came out with an amazing book that released this month called Toxic Superfoods. You know, look into that. If all, if all you did was waste two days of your life diving into it, then great but you may literally be saving your life. You may be able to get up and play with your grandkids. And you know, when you're 60 years old or 70 years old and you wouldn't have otherwise, that's how dangerous those things are. Yeah, that's pretty wild. And that's like kind of like it 
I need to deep dive into that more. It kind of excites me because it's like, I feel like we could also have a common ground. Like I don't need to try to convince people to be carnivore, but maybe looking at the vegetables that you are eating, maybe let's, let's remove the ones that have oxalates. Cause I have, you know, two close friends that suffer with migraines, like constantly. Mm -hmm. And I've mentioned it before. And then I just left it alone. Like you should try carnivore because ultimate elimination diet and add things back in, but didn't happen. That's fine. But then just recently I suggested, you know, looking at the oxalates thing and they didn't even know what I was talking about and they hadn't heard it before. But I think that can be life-changing for a lot of people just because it is so toxic. And I think it's an easy change or an easy step, but, you know, not asking anyone to switch to carnivore, but just looking at the vegetables that you are eating in the fruit, if you want to keep those in your diet, maybe just make some better choices on those. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that I feel like that's a topic that needs to like get out there more for sure. Absolutely. And and the, the thing about toxins with plants, whether it be oxalates or glycoalkaloids or lectins or whatever, whatever it is. Let me back up very quickly. One if you look, I'm sorry, if you look at our dietary past and the role technology has played in our diets, there's two things that are very interesting, two trends, one in, with plants and one with animals. Both we, we've created over three and a half million years, amazing technologies surrounding our ability to get and process resources from our environment, both plant and animal. And if you look at the plant, I'm sorry, the animal resources, almost all of our brain power and our dietary past went towards creating tools that allowed us to access the animals, right? Overcome our physical limitations and be able to hunt them or trap them or catch them in nets or with hooks or whatever it is. So bows and arrows and atlatls and throwing sticks and traps and deadfalls and fishing hooks and fishing nets. I mean, that's what we see through time, our ancestors creating to capture these animals. Once you have the animal, all you need is a sharp edge and you need to cut it open. I mean, that's it. And you have whatever that animal is, you have amazing, massive, nutrient-dense, bioavailable and safe nutrition sitting in front of you. You don't even have to cook it. On the other hand, up until the agriculture revolution, which is when everything changes and we start having to make plows and all the kinds of machines, up until that point, almost all of the technology that went into us safely consuming plants and getting nutrition from them had nothing to do with getting them. You picked them with your fingers. Maybe you had a digging stick to dig up a root, but almost all the technology was focused on making a plant safe and getting that nutrient uh, the nutrients in it in a state that can actually be absorbed by our human body. So there's a lot of processing of plants and a lot of getting of animals. That That's what it is. And I think we need to think about it the same way today. We are removed. Many of, even us, I mean, we buy a lot of meat and we buy a lot of, of plants. You know, we buy a lot of it, even though we do a lot of hunting and, and foraging. We are removed from it. And we need to realize that if we're eating a plant, we need to almost always do something to it to make it safe or don't eat it. Like there's a lot of plants just because it's in the grocery store doesn't mean it's safe for human consumption. You know, the Twinkie isn't safe for human consumption and the spinach isn't safe, you know, necessarily for human consumption. And I know for some of us listening, it's like, oh my gosh, my brain is hurting. I've been, you know, I've been listening to all this stuff and, you know, I thought almonds were amazing. Now you tell me almonds aren't good. You know, what am I supposed to do? Here's, let's go back to that uh, kind of conversation we had with that, like what, um, and we were making some of these problems for ourselves today because of the modern food system and our disconnect. There's a great guy in Ireland by the name of Kean Foley. And uh, I think he very, he, he, um, 
he wrote a great book called Don't Eat for Winter. And I think it sums up my approach to this <clears throat> really, really well. It doesn't have to be that complicated. So Kean's story is he was in his 30s several years ago and maybe a decade ago, I'm not exactly sure, overweight um, in the middle. He was in Ireland in the middle of winter and he was eating an apple, looking out his kitchen window and he had an apple tree in his yard. And he's eating this apple, looking at the apple tree. And he's like, there's no apples on that tree. Heck, there's not even any leaves on that tree. And I'm eating this apple. And what he decided was, he realized how weird that was, right? And he said, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna eat hyper-seasonally. That's all that I'm gonna do. I'm gonna eat what's available to me when it's available. Not, not natural, I mean, some of it's farm, but without the aid of greenhouses, without the aid of shipping things all over the world, whatever's available to me at that particular time, I'm gonna eat it. And he noticed that most plants, most sugar and starch heavy plants are available in the late summer and into the fall. And the relationship with animals is that animals put on weight by eating those. And they use that weight to insulate them and feed off themselves over the winter. And then in the spring, they're thinner and then they have the right plants, you know, that sort of thing. So all he did was eat hyper seasonally. Since then, he's an international kettlebell champion. He has won the you know drug-free Arnold Classic. I mean, this guy is the epitome of health. And the only change he made was to eat seasonally. That's it. It's simple. And he says, he even says himself, you know, look, my weight fluctuates throughout the year. Like when potatoes are available, I eat potatoes. When fruit's available, I eat fruit. So at that time of the year, I do gain a little bit of weight. And at the end of the winter, you know, back down to whatever percent body fat because of, you know, whatever the diet is, is at that time. And not necessarily you're going to be eating all those plants or all that fruit, but I really think his approach is really powerful. We have made this more complicated than it needs to be. We just need to think about when are different resources available? What state are they in? You know, what really, you know, does, does a diet look like for the, you know, for the past that actually built us as humans and somehow try to model that. The caveat with that is plants are, or, I'm sorry, animals are available all year round. I mean, that's, that's the interesting thing. Uh, you know, uh, plants have seasons. Animals, yes, they'll change just like other, you know, some animals, their fat content is higher in, in the, you know, in the fall than it is in the spring because, but animals are available all year round as a food resource. Yeah, it makes sense to me. <laughs> I love I all mean, that. I, I can't believe, sometimes I'm like, as much as I love listening to this and talking about this, it almost blows my mind that we have to talk about this. Do you know what yep. I mean? Like, <laughs> it's one of those things where I think like, you know, we're very like-minded and we're sitting here and we're like, well, duh, well, duh, you know, of course. And so I, I have to pull back and think, well, you know, we've all been manipulated so deeply starting from when we're in school level to believe certain things about food that this to 99% of people is not learned. You know, we don't sure. learn to eat cyclical and seasonal. And so I think that's the funny part is, you know, we have a podcast where we sit here and talk about this and we agree, but there's people who are listening who have never been, you know, told to, yeah, maybe just think about eating an apple only when it's in season, you know? So I think that that's wonderful though. I think it needs to be said, even though we're sitting here going, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of I completely agree. Completely. Uh, I agree. Um, okay. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up, Evan? 
No, but we have to do our three questions. Yeah, but first, uh -oh. um, well, let's say that for the end so people listen all the way through. But first, if you want to tell everyone where they can find you and what you're doing, and I see your shirt you have, and I know you have a book, so tell us all the things. Awesome. Yes, so I have a book. It's been out a full year now called Eat Like a Human, and uh, you can get that on any major uh, any major and non-major uh, book outlets. We have it in, in print and uh, on audio and also electronically. And that, I love that book because the first part of that book focuses on, you know, an in-depth dive into our dietary, ancestral dietary past to sort of laid a foundation. And then every chapter after that is broken into a different kind of food category. And we discuss the prehistory and history of that food um, and the best way to approach that food to make it as safe and nourishing as possible for you and your family. There's 75 recipes. Um, and then we built, like I mentioned earlier, we built a restaurant on the back of that book. You know, all the, everything that, all the recipes in that book and and all the approaches to that book, we put into practice downstairs at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. We're located here in Chestertown, Maryland on the Eastern Shore. And uh, we, here, real quick, we don't use any industrial nut seed oils. We utilize a nose to tail approach to all of our animals. We do a lot of in-house butchering. Um, fermentation is at the core of just about everything that we do. We don't use any refined sugars. Um, we highlight local farmers and there's no two ingredients put together outside of our walls, except for our old base seasoning. We make all the butter, we make all the yogurt, all the cheese, all of it. Um, and then upstairs, we have a nonprofit called the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is our teaching kitchen and all of our research and our outreach goes through there. So you can find uh, information out about the nonprofit and the research and the work that I do at, at uh, Dr. Bill Schindler. So at DR Bill Schindler and on uh, our website is eatlikeahuman.com. And then the Modern Stone Age Kitchen is modernstoneagekitchen.com and on social media at Modern Stone Age Kitchen. Awesome. You've got a awesome. lot going on. <laughs> we're busy. And I'm gonna have to, we're going to have to do a family trip out there. I'll bring all the kids. My kids like are total meat eaters. So they'll like love that so much. Awesome. So We'd love to have, have you. Out there. Um, okay. Three fun questions that we ask everyone before we, uh, we sign off. Uh, are okay. you ready? I'm ready. Okay, number one, what is your favorite curse word? Oh, <laughs> see, I'm, I'm ready, but not prepared for this. <laughs> That's the whole point. We got to catch you off guard. I actually have no idea. That's a great question. <laughs> I don't know. I, I say shit way too much, but that's probably shit. <laughs> You're our first non-F word person. Every really? One has been the F word. Yeah. Okay. I feel, I feel good about that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So good. Um, and then the second one is before you were in this health space, what was your favorite non-healthy, non-carnivore, non-meat food? Well, that's easy. Boston cream donut. 100%. Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> Boston okay. Cream Donuts. That was fast. <laughs> <laughs> and last, what are you currently reading or watching? Ooh, well, I, I, I'm I'm watching Yellowstone. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching Yellowstone and I am about to dive deep into Mindy, Dr. Mindy Peltz's new book. I don't laugh. It's called Fast Like a Girl. Um, but <laughs> I don't know if you if you know Minnie Pelt. She's amazing. Yes. And I love her work. And I love how I know she does a lot of work that is tailored towards women. But I think men can get a lot of in, uh, information inside out of it, too. So that's the book that as of I'm, 
I'm getting it for Christmas. It, I have it, but I'm, I'm actually opening it for Christmas. So um, that's the book I'll be Your diving into. Yes. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I love her. She's my go-to for fasting information as well as like Thomas DeLauer, but she is great, especially for women because she talks about like fasting and your cycles. So yeah. that's great. I mean, for you, because you can help women. You know, and I, like, I, yeah, I don't understand any of that stuff, but <laughs> but, I, but I do, yeah, exactly. And that's now reason. you'll be more knowledgeable in that. So that's that's awesome. I've heard it's a great book. She's wonderful. So I love yeah, that. She, she's awesome. I love her. Cool. Well, this was amazing. Super informative. Thank you so much. Well, Appreciate thank you. It was here. great to talk with you, Bill. All right. We will see you later.